What we'll do is we'll try and leave time uh, at the end. If anybody has any uh, questions, screams of outrage, whatever it happens to be, and we can listen to those. I'll be around to answer any particular questions you have about, you know, Hebrew roots and where you follow into these particular charts or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but um, one of the things we'll also try and do is fin- wrap up uh, so that you can spend time with each other. These Sundays in July are a great opportunity just to mix across the different fellowships, groups in the church, be with one another, and to get to learn something of the richness of people that come uh, to Grace Community Church. My name is Andrew Curry. I'm like, kind of an imposter because I I'm not uh, a member here at Grace Community Church. I live in Northern Ireland, in a place called Lisburn, and I pastor a church there, Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I've been there for seven years, but I used to be here. And uh, I used to be a, a pastor in the junior high ministry in the church and got to serve as an elder here, and I was really, and continue to be, really thankful for that particular time and the opportunity to serve uh, Ireland is a strange place. The north, uh, there is a, uh, an evangelical presence uh, there in the north, and yet there's a lot of conflict and fighting and scars that that has brought. And I want to ask you, please be praying for that part of the island, but also be praying for the majority of the island, the Republic of Ireland. It's the most unreached part of the English-speaking world, less than a percent of uh, evangelical Christians there in that part of the uh, island. There's a great need uh, missionally there. Uh, We need workers. We need people to uh, share the good news. It's a part of the world where the Roman Catholic Church for a long time had really a a stranglehold on uh, the country. It was a country that was founded to be a Catholic nation, and the Roman Catholic Church was able to control so much of what took place there, and really any other type of church group, including evangelicals, were treated like a cult. And so things have broken and changed dramatically there over the last number of years. Ireland has become aggressively secular. Part of that was a strong reaction against the abuse scandals that broke out uh, really in the mid-late 90s. And as more and more was understood about what was taking place um, in that kind of corrupt system, uh, people turned en masse away from Catholicism, but they didn't have somewhere to turn to. And so they've really embraced a very secular mindset, and yet there is an openness there to talk and to engage. And really what we need is, uh, well, gospel feet on the ground. So please be praying for that part and that of the world and that need. I help with the DMIN program at the Master's Seminary, and it gives me uh, an opportunity to come a couple of times a year over uh, to the church here and to spend time um, with so many friends and so many of uh, your pastors here at the church, just to be helped and encouraged by them, and I am so thankful for that. Now, if you're here this morning, and you looked at the bulletin, and you saw what I was talking about, and you said, that's what I want to go to. I am deeply concerned. (laughs) There are 12 genealogies in Scripture, 12 genealogies in the Old and New Testament. 
And I think most of us have like some sort of vague idea about these genealogies that um, a lot of them point to Christ and they trace his kind of line of descent, or maybe it shows something about the priestly line, the Levites, and helps us to work out who's allowed to be in office or whatever it happens to be. But after that, we don't really think very much about them. Uh, Most of us think of them as something boring, irrelevant, dare I say it, sleeping just, maybe that's why you're here. You just need a good nap. (laughs) Well, we start with that, and then we add into the mix a Northern Irish accent without (laughs) subtitles. And I think you've either been in the heat too long in Southern California, or maybe too much smog has got to your brain. But I'm glad you're here And the very first thing I wanted to do is to show you that there is a point to this talk. And there is a a real reason to be here. And so I want you to turn to two very familiar passages of Scripture. And the first one is 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And before we enter into our study, we need to bear these things in mind. I'm glad you're here. It'd be very depressing talking to myself. But I'm also glad you're here because I do think there's a lot of richness in these passages of Scripture for us to learn from. And my conviction about that is born out of what Scripture itself says. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it insists all Scripture, that includes these long lists of names, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And my point is very simply, this is not an empty exercise. This isn't filler material. God, in His infinite wisdom, has given us these lists of names that are worth our time and study. There's help here. There is practical application. I'm sure a lot of you, when you looked at this and you saw, you know, genealogies or begats, you thought, whew, there'll be a lot of information, but that's where it stops. But this is, this is for life. You know, this is to change how we live and how we think. It's to move our affections. In fact, turn over as well to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. And it says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, what is it? Hope. So this is our task this morning. We are going to go digging and we're going to try and find hope. We're going to try and find hope in these particular lists in our Bibles, and we can do it with confidence because God has assured us these lists in His Word are really relevant for you this morning. Now, I want to give caveat to everything we're going to say. This is a flyover each passage, each genealogy in its own right would merit a full exposition, and we could sit down and do that, but I don't know. Again, the heat's got to my head. 
And we're going to have to buckle our seatbelts because what we're going to try and do this morning is fly over 4,004 years of family history. We'll, 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 we'll briefly glance at, you know, great uncle Peleg and we'll, we'll see out of the corner of our eye our you know, Tamar, our cousin once removed on this side, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep plodding our way through to try and uh, glean what we can in a sweep through these genealogies, but it will only be that. And I want to encourage you to go back to these passages and to think about them. I want to give just really four practical points, four practical points that bubble out of these uh, specific genealogies and to think about their relevance for today. And I want to do it all fast because, well, you need your lunch. But I'll be here. And if you have any questions, you can tell, ask them at the end, or you can just jump up and shout them out here. That would make it much more exciting, wouldn't it? So you can do that, okay? If you're moved by the Spirit, you know, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> little bonus point before we begin. And it's this. As we look at all these lists, this is a good point to have in mind. God is interested in people, okay? If you're taking notes, you can put it down. God is interested in people. And, and we'll see that as we go through. He's interested in people from all nations. The first genealogy we'll wade into is Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. And it's very deliberate in showing that all these people of the world God is interested in. He cares about people from all nationalities. Also, he cares about people who sin. He takes note of, he's interested in people who sin. The very first genealogy of Scripture is not one that points to Jesus Christ. It's one that highlights a, a man who is up to his eyeballs in sin. And the legacy of sinfulness that he leaves behind him. But God still is interested in sinners. And we'll see that as we go. And not only is he interested in people from all nations, and not only is he interested in sinners, but this is one of the most wonderful things about God. He's interested in ordinary people. Really ordinary, forgetful people. He takes notes, note of them. One commentator talking about the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, he said, many people in this list are completely unknown. And unknown to them, they were playing their part in salvation history. You're not going to know many of the characters in these lists. But that says in and of itself something about the nature of our God. He knows people that everybody else misses. In fact, J.C. Ryle said, how little we know of many of the persons whose names are here recorded. They all had their joys and sorrows, their hopes and fears, their cares and troubles, their schemes and plans like any of ourselves. But they have all passed away from the earth and gone to their own place. And so it will be with us. We too are passing away and soon shall be gone. And he's making a point of the, the fleeting nature of life, but it, it, there's also a point there about the nature of these lists. They're full of ordinary people like us. And yet God takes note. God is concerned with. 
God is watching and, and knows all about every name here. His attention stretches across national boundaries. It stretches across lines of morality, levels of popularity. We have a God who is interested in people in a way that is unique, in a way that is different from his interest in every other aspect of creation. Me and my family, we were, we've just come back down from Yosemite. That's why I'm so hairy and, you know, sun-kissed and all of that. Uh, it, it, it wasn't Ireland, that the, it was Yosemite. And when we were there, we saw so many wonderful things. The giant sequoia is unbelievable, but they're not humans. And that's the point here. God has a particular interest in all of humanity because they are His image bearers. And we've got to bear that in mind as we start our study. Now, the first real point, that was just a bonus. You can tip me afterwards for that one. The first real point this morning is this. God so loved the world. God so loved the world and I want us to think, first of all, about the genealogy that appears in Genesis chapter 10. The third genealogy that appears in all of Scripture, it's given in the context of the flood. Just after the flood has taken place, as creation is about to move forward once again, as humanity is about to dominate the world once more. What we have is not this linear genealogy of one person in each generation, but we have this segmented genealogy that shows all of the spread and movement that has taken place at a very particular point in history. If you look at Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, and look at the last verse, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by their nations. And out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. This is a, a list that traces humanity's spread in three directions. You've got the children, the sons of Japheth, who settle in the north and west, and really find the Greek and Scythian tribes in verses 2 to 5. Then you have Ham's descendants that come afterwards. They settle in Egypt and Canaan. They establish great cities in the east, and very important for biblical history, Canaan itself. And then you've got the descendants of Shem, that third son of Noah. And they settle in the eastern lands in the region of the Persian Gulf there in verse 21 to 31. And the chapter begins by indicating that it's going to seek to trace the lines of Noah post-flood there in verse 1. And by the end, it reminds us again that this is every nation in the world at the time. And wherever they are found in the world, every single one of them finds their origins in Noah. Now, as you look and study Genesis 10, there's a number of things that come to the surface. And the first thing is that God is in control of all nations. He's in control of all nations. We're going to move in the Old Testament and focus on Israel very soon, in Genesis chapter 12 onward. But before we even get there, the Bible wants to stress that God, God is in control, not just of Israel. No, all nations 
are under his control. Look back one chapter to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he repeats it in verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply on it. What does he want them to do? To multiply and to spread. But you know what? People are stubborn and they don't like doing it, except look at what happens in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated or spread on the earth after the flood. God says spread, and then he makes them do it. He makes them spread. Even characters that appear in the middle of this list, notorious characters, like there's a guy called Nimrod. He's a a nasty piece of work. And Nimrod is there. He's not a Yahweh lover. He's opposed to Yahweh. He's a self-made man, but he will scatter. Why? Because God's in control of the nations. Look at the next chapter. If you have a wee heading in your Bible, what does it say? The Tower of Babel? We say Babel in Ireland, okay? you have this great story of this tar of rebellion. God says, spread, and they say, no. But before that story even comes into play, Genesis 10 makes clear God's still in control. But before people sin, and they will, God knows they will, God's already got his agenda taking place. He knows what's going on. None of it can stop him. The second thing we learn from this genealogy is that Yahweh's plans are global rather than simply national. Every nation is here in the world at that time. God is taking note of their origin, of their location, even before Israel. And Israel would hear this story read to them by Moses on the plains of Moab before they ever hear mention of themselves. They're told that God is in control and taking note of every other nation that is out there. He's interested in all people in their own right. It, it reminds them that, 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 that all people ultimately are one family, answerable to the same one God. The third thing we see here is that all, the hope for all the world is in that serpent-crushing seed. Again, I wish we could slow down, but you need to get lunch, not just dinner tonight. So I, I'm going to keep moving. But if you were to look more closely at the genealogy, you'll see there's, there's a character that's focused on. He's not mentioned once. He's mentioned twice, Eber. And he's the one from whom the Hebrew people descended. And as those people on the plains of Moab heard this uh, genealogy read out, out they, their ears would have pricked up. You, you know, whenever you see old family photos. What do you do? But you always look for the people who are most close to you. So if you look at uh, pictures uh, that you find in your great-grandmother's attic, you always look for the pictures of your mom or your dad, the people who are most close to you. And as the Israelites listened to this genealogy, they did the same. They're normal people. And they heard that name Eber, and they heard it repeated. 
And as they did, they were reminded that the serpent-crushing seed was still coming. The flood had taken place. People had rebelled so much, God destroyed it all, but it didn't destroy His promise. A serpent-crushing seed that not just Israel needed, the world needed, was still coming. In fact, before the next rebellion in the very next chapter, when they will try to build that tower, no, understand the promised seed is still marching forward. He's still coming. And ultimately, that table of nations that will be forced to spread and separate it will be able to be united, all these different peoples across the world, through that promised seed. The fourth thing we see in this genealogy is it defines who all the nations, all the families of the earth are. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, God gives these special promises to Abraham, the establishment of a a new people, a new nation, and a fuller hope. And he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, who are all the families of the earth? Is he talking about the Canaanites? Is he talking about the embryo nation of the Philistines? Is he talking about the Egyptians? The Persians? Well, we've had it already defined for us. Genesis 10 tells us who all the clans, all the families of the earth are. Genesis 10, 32. It's all the people. Genesis 10 reminds us that all means all. All will be blessed through the seed that will come. All families of the earth will be affected. And the other genealogy I want you to take note of briefly as we think about this point is Genesis 25. Genesis 25 is a a strange one. It's got two genealogies. You get two for one here. And both of them are linked because they have the same father, Abraham, who commences them. And, And they encircle his death very literally in the text. You've got the children of Keturah, it's a later wife of Abraham there in verses 1 to 4, and in the description of what happens with that line. And then in verses uh, 12 to 18, you've got the descendants of Ishmael, that kind of firstborn son of Abraham through Hagar. And, and before the narrative goes to Isaac, who's, you know, the Bible's concerned with, because ultimately that's who the Israelite people will come from, it takes note of these other children. And that helps us to note a few things. None of these other children that are listed here would be significant in Israel's history. They're not going to contribute anything to God's unfolding salvation plan. They're not going to swoop in and save Israel in a war. They're not going to be missionaries and preach about the greatness of God. But they exist. And they exist because God promised them. Abraham was told that God would make him a father of a multitude of nations. And Genesis 25 gives testimony to the fact that God keeps even the small promises, not just the big ones about Jesus, but the small ones too. Abraham's not just going to be the father of Israel. He's the father of a multitude of nations. 
because God said. Now, now, Abraham's a normal man. Sometimes we make these guys so stoic. He cares about his children. He loves them. And the text, again, if you could slow down and spend more time in it, gives testimony to that. He gives gifts to his children. These were significant gifts to establish them. You get the sense whenever he dies in the middle of this chapter and Ishmael is at the graveside, that that there's care and affection there. He loved his boys. But the hard bit to understand in this genealogy is the text also says he sends them away. Every boy would ultimately be loved and cared for and gifted, but then sent away from his son Isaac. Why? Why? Well, because the promise was tied to Isaac. And Abraham had to do all he could to protect and to establish Isaac, not just for Isaac's sake, but for the other boys. Kidner, great commentator in the Old Testament, who's just a good turn of phrase, he said, Abraham sent those boys away so that they would have a home to return to. They needed this promise to be kept. They needed it to be established. And so the big implication of these two odd genealogies, Genesis 10, Genesis 25, is that God so loved the world, not just Israel, but the world. And when we embrace that, when we get that into our head, the theology of these genealogies, it changes the way we we read the Old Testament, because it's not just a book full of hope for Israel as a nation, but a book full of hope for the world that ultimately would be realized in that seed that would come to Bethlehem. For example, you see God's heart for the whole world and some of the other genealogies. It's sprinkled all the way through. Exodus chapter 6, we're told that Simeon, one of the fathers of a tribe of Israel, his wife was a Canaanite, a foreigner, brought in to be the matriarch of that tribe. You see that echoed as well in Ruth. What's Ruth called all the way through the book? She is Ruth the Moabite, because she's a foreigner. But God loves foreigners. He so loved the world, and He brings her in. Uh, First Chronicles, written at the end of the Old Testament, is a book really about the history of Israel. But the the genealogy, and I'll read it to you in a moment, it goes from chapter 1 through to chapter 9. No, I won't read it. That genealogy that, 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 that cares so significantly for Israel deliberately traces the line back to Adam, the father of humanity, not just the nation. And in Luke, Luke chapter 3, it does the same thing. It, goes, it traces everything back to Adam, not just Israel. In fact, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, another genealogy, Matthew's gospel is argued to be the one most clearly evangelistic for the Jew, written to persuade them. That genealogy has sprinkled very deliberately within it four Gentile women. It's very unusual to read a woman mentioned in these genealogies, but you do read four mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, and they're Gentile women. Why? 
Because God so loved the world. We, we expect it to be echoed all the way through. And you see it in other places. These genealogies just, when we think about them, they open our eyes. Do you remember in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, Jesus sends out the 70. Remember that story? And that's kind of like little STM. You know, he sends them out as little missionaries. Why 70? Do you know how many people, nations are listed in Genesis chapter 10? 70. The world needs to hear this good news. And Jesus sends out missionaries to the world. Aaron, look. The book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts has lots in it. But it's three testimonies that it records. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And when we understand the table of nations, it helps us to appreciate those testimonies in a deeper way. And in Acts chapter 8, who saved in Acts chapter 8? Do you remember? The Ethiopian eunuch. He was a descendant of Ham. Well, what happens in, in Acts chapter 9? You've got Saul, who became Paul. He was a descendant of Shem. And then in Acts chapter 10, we've Cornelius the Roman. He was a descendant of Japheth. You see the echo in Acts. Every branch there in Genesis 10, this good news story about Jesus affects and produces a different type of fruit. And turn to Isaiah chapter 60. This has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture because of the genealogies. Isaiah chapter 60. Do you remember those lost boys of Abraham in Genesis 25? Here, Isaiah chapter 60, it's looking forward to the establishment in the future of, of worship in, in the, the, the new temple of 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 God. It's talking about a time when it's complete, a time when when things are perfect, a time when things are wonderful. And it says in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6, a multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news to the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall adorn my glorious house with beautiful glory. Now, when we read those names, we forget, don't we? That they seem strange to us until we study Genesis 25. And all of a sudden, these names are significant. Because verse 6 mentions Midian, the son of Abraham through Keturah, and Ephah, the grandson of Abraham through Keturah, and Sheba, another grandson of Abraham through Keturah. What does it say about them in verse 6? They'll bring offerings to this temple, and, and they'll be the ones praising Yahweh, bringing testimony, good news stories about him. And then in verse 7, we, we see Kedar, the son of Ishmael, and Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael. And what are those boys doing? Well, they're, they're actually worshiping in the temple. 
And they're, 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 they're the servants serving in the temple. And when we're told, some translations translate it, they will make more beautiful the already beautiful house. In other words, this aspiration in the future, that the only thing that can make what is already a beautiful house, the place of worship, more beautiful, is the inclusion of these lost boys, these lost sons of Abraham. Why? For God so loved the world. You read in Revelation, later on, at the close of Scripture, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, after these things I looked And behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. (laughs) That was said long before. In Genesis chapter 10, in Genesis 25, this is not a new aspiration. This is a long-established application or aspiration. Now, now, what do we do with that? For God so loved the world, what do we do with that? So, well, if we love the world too. If, you, if we love God, we love the things He loves. And if we have a God who, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, is consumed with a heart for not just a people, but all peoples of this world, surely we as His people ought to be too. We don't just do missions as a thing that churches have to tick a box. We care about mission. We invest ourselves in praying for our missionaries and and partnering with them. And you live in Los Angeles. The world comes to you. It's easy for you guys. The world's all pouring in here. And God loves them. And and there's a message to be shared with them. And we should share that heart. Care for people as image bearers of God who he is interested in. And the gospel has been designed for. We've got to be careful to avoid any type of nationalism, it's so easy for that to spring up, that, 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 that ascends beyond God's primary concern for the nation. I said earlier, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, is the most unreached part of the English-speaking world. It needs gospel workers. And pray, pray that God would, would, would send workers into the harvest field there. The second big point I want to make, and we'll move quickly through this one because I think it's a wee bit more familiar to us, is God so loved the world, He sent His Son. Most of us, when we think of these genealogies, we think of their connection to Jesus. And it's right, about half of the genealogies, just less than half, are directly connected to Jesus. So there's a lot that aren't, but half are. And, and, And that's important. And each of them stress something important. In fact, We'll think, first of all, about Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 stresses about the seed that would come, that he was needed to escape death. The phrase that comes up all the time in Genesis chapter 5 is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Because 
well, people die. And they die according to Genesis 2.17 as a result of the fall. Because of sin, death is a consequence. Death is a punishment. But but you know what's weird about Genesis chapter 5? And he died, 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 and he didn't. There's one who escapes death. Enoch. And what does the text say about Enoch? How did he escape death? Well, according to verse 21 and verse 24, it's because he did what? He walked with God. He walked with God. And and though he lives after the fall, he he has this almost pre-fall relationship with God. A connection to him that allows him to escape death itself. There's a wonderful contrast. Chapter 4 has a genealogy too. And you have seventh in the line through Seth from Adam is this character Enoch who escapes death. But the line before through Cain, seventh in the line, is Lamech, who's a notorious murderer, nasty piece. He's one who causes death. But here's one who escapes death because through the sea that would come, one can walk with God and escape death. Genesis chapter 11, it stresses that the seed was needed not just to escape death, but to escape sin itself. Again, we're back in that Tower of Babel. And the, the, the picture there is of sin on a massive scale, rebellion against God. And the author's aim is to show that God is concerned with the seed of the woman. And that promise, whether it be the flood, whether it be Babel or anything else, that promise will stand. And that line of descent will march forward. It won't be stopped by humans fumbling. It'll it'll march forward because God has made his promise. In Genesis 11, it's very similar to Genesis 5. It, It actually picks up where Genesis 5 stops and keeps marching forward. But there's a big difference. What's the big difference? We don't have that phrase, and he died. I think Genesis 5, the the stress is on this curse. But but Genesis 11, right before Genesis chapter 12 and that message to Abraham, it, it moves from focusing on the curse to focusing on the promise. He is coming. The answer for sin, the answer for death, he is coming. And that promised seed uh, uh, is what we need. Ruth chapter 4 traces the line too. And it reminds us that that seed would come through ordinary providence. Oh, Ruth's such a lovely little book, isn't it? It's a story about just people being people. And the world, their world's being turned upside down got hunger and marriage and childbirth. And and yet the whole thing finishes with a really exciting genealogy. And I think, why? It was such a good story. And and now a genealogy. And the genealogy, I think, works in the story to make us look back over all that has been told, all these ordinary events, and to see that there was a bigger movement of God taking place through those ordinary events. 
God is working through the personal emptiness of Ruth and Naomi and their needs being met, that practical need, to bring about at the same time through his, his almighty hand the glorious unfolding of his promises to deliver and to give and to bring this seed into the world. The book begins in verse 1 by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled, according to judges, was a time when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was need at this time, need for a king. And here, this genealogy at the end says, God brought King David and ultimately would bring the seed because in ordinary circumstances, God is at work providing not just the ordinary means to keep going, he does that, but also his big salvation story. First Chronicles 1 to 9, the longest one in Scripture, it stresses the importance of Israel, it does, but that the importance of Israel was rooted in the, in the fact that the seed would come from her. That's where their, her significance is found. That's primar, primarily what made Israel so significant. The, the first tribe that is listed is not Reuben. The first tribe listed is that of Judah. It goes from for chapter 2, verse 3, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 22. Judah comes first among his brothers and disproportionately gets far more coverage. 50% of the genealogical material in First Chronicles 1 to 9 is all about the tribe of Judah. Why? Because this is the tribe that the Messiah would come from. Uh, this is a book written at the end of the Old Testament. And, and at the end of the Old Testament, this people restored from exile, trying to do it right, are reminded that ultimately their significance is found in the seed that would come through that line. Matthew chapter 1 does the same thing. It very obviously traces the line to Jesus. But it begins in verse 1 by saying, the son of Abraham, the son of David. If you're a son of David, you obviously are a son of Abraham, but the text stresses those things to make the very simple point that promises were given to David, promises were given to Abraham, and they were all realized in Jesus Christ. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. You see another little point being stressed here. Matthew 1, 17. Therefore, all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And the, the, the point is, very simply, Jesus came at the right time. He didn't come late. He didn't come early. He came at exactly the moment God had selected Luke chapter 3, the last genealogy that appears in Scripture, stresses that this man, this seed, this Jesus, he's the second Adam who can resist temptation. The the, the line doesn't just go back to Adam. It actually goes one step further. He's also the Son of God, the Son of God. And it puts Adam and Jesus side by side. 
And we're meant to see a contrast between the two of them. For Adam was a son of God who fell. But Jesus stands as the son of God with whom he was well pleased. And what immediately follows the genealogy is the account of the temptation of Jesus. And unlike Adam and Eve who fell and plunged humanity into darkness, Jesus resists the temptation with the word of God and offers hope for humanity. God so loved the world, he sent his son. Well, what do we do with that practically? <laughs> well, the big thing is be thankful for Jesus. I know that's obvious, but I think that's important to say. We can't make, make him big enough. Or we, we can't see enough of him in, in Scripture. Now, I don't mean do weird things and find him between, behind every rock and tree and everything else. I just mean he is big. He is a major point. Our brokenness and sin and the mess is resolved in Jesus Christ. God has, has done a wonderful work in sending his Son for the world to save we can't make enough of him. We need to, if we walk out of church any Sunday without Jesus at the front of our mind, something's gone wrong. And I think these genealogies stress that again. I think it reminds us that God works as well through ordinary people, ordinary lives to make Jesus known. Again, like we saw with J.C. Ryle's quote, so many of these people are, are unknown quantities, but God was bringing about his salvation story through them. Ruth, she just wanted some bread on the table to feed her mother-in-law. But through that, God was working and ultimately going to bring into the world the Savior that Ruth needed. I think it helps us to read the Old Testament with, with that global agenda, not just an Israel-only agenda. God cares about the Jew and the Gentile. He still cares about the Jew and the Gentile. That's why we should pray for the, the Jewish people. And pray for the nations of the world. That Jew and Gentile would be united in Jesus Christ. The third big lesson from the genealogies and you have been doing really well. I'm very impressed. We see what life is like living without God. Two genealogies in particular, Genesis 4 and Genesis 36, stress what life is like without God. If you want to live in this world without God, the Bible has something to say about that. And Genesis 4 is actually the first genealogy in all of Scripture. It's something important to say about it. Genesis 36, apart from that, you know, nine-chapter thing in Chronicles, Genesis 36 is actually the longest genealogy in Scripture. And it's about Esau. The one, Jacob, he loved Esau, he hated this fallen man. And yet the Bible gives great attention to his legacy. Genesis 4 traces the line of Cain, this guy who murders his brother and then moves eastward further away from God. And what it does is it notes all the accomplishments. So many firsts in world history come through Cain's line. And there's also this terrible aggressive story of a murderer, Lamech, that we mentioned. In Genesis 36, it traces the line of Esau and notes how it expanded so quickly, how it was so successful. 
Verses 1 to 8, you have the family developing in Canaan and why they moved away. But verses 9 to 43 trace how the Edomite group as a people established the, the Edomites. You have their early descendants in verses 9 to 14. You have their tribal chiefs listed in verses 15 to 19. You have another nation who they, uh, they, 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 they subject under them and rule over in verses 20 to 30. You have a list of kings uh, in verses 31 to 39. They, they, they have a, 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 a line of kings established and the territories that they rolled over in verses 40 to 43. Now, you don't need to know all of those things. But here's the point. Both of these chapters give pictures in the genealogies of deliberate sinners. People who live purposefully out of God's plan, away from God, in rebellion against God. And what happens to them? Oh, they do really well. Like, they're really, really successful. Like, way more successful, the text will stress, than the people of God at that time. And, and that's an important point for us to note from these genealogies. Deliberate sinners prosper. Cain, the first murderer, he prospers. In his line, you, you have the first builder of a city himself in verse 17. You have the first real farming techniques developed in, in verse 20. You have the creation of music in verse 21. You have the beginning of metalwork in verse 22. This is the foundation of of economics and the arts and uh, of, of technological industry. And it all comes under Cain's line. And you see the same in chapter 36, that rapid successful line of Esau, verses 20 to 30. While Israel is still twiddling their thumbs in Canaan, just sojourners, strangers, no authority of their own. And actually, when they'll go to Egypt and become slaves, all that time, Esau's line, they're, they're ruling over other people groups. They're doing amazingly well. Uh, chapter 36, verse 31, reminds the reader that Esau's descendants and all these kings came while Israel had none. It says that. He has this long list of kings in a time when Israel has not one king. They do so well. The second point I want to make about these two genealogies, and it sounds like I'm saying exactly the same thing. We do that sometimes in Ireland. Prosperous people sin. And I guess the point I'm stressing here is we've got to be so careful. Sometimes I think we look at people in this world. And we have two categories of sinners. We've got the, you know, the sinner who's on the streets and has really, you know, done themselves harm. And then we've got a more, we know they're sinners technically, but we admire them, the successful sinner. And, and sometimes we can envy them, but also try and want to emulate them. But, 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 but the point of these genealogies, it's the, these people prospered because of their sin. We've got to note that sometimes sin gives momentary advance in this world. 
be, you think of Cain's line. Lamech comes in, Cain 2.0, and he does a first. He's the first polygamist. Breaks God's design of marriage. And what's the result? Slap on the wrist. Something more severe? No, amazing fruitfulness. It's from him that those three advancements come. His boys born in these two relationships. That's where the industrial advancement comes from. That's where the arts are born from. That's where technology takes such a leap through. It's through the sin. Matthew Henry the Puritan said, here was a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. You've got to note that. You see the same thing with Esau. Esau does, he has massive growth and success, but it's similar. He's three wives. He, he, he does one up on Lamech. Two Canaanites and Ishmael's daughter. And actually his success comes according to verses 6 to 8 because he moves out of the promised land. He moves deliberately away. And that's when he flourishes. Sinners can do so well in this world, sometimes even do well because of their sin. For a moment, their sin gives them advantage. But you know what? What do all the people in Genesis 4 and all the people in Genesis 36, what do they have in common? Well, sin, yes, true. What else? Death. And they died. They died. They, they were so successful in this life. But you know what? Their success today has been forgotten. When was the last time you went to see the first piece of art ever made in the world? Do you remember the last time you heard the first piece of music ever played? Do you remember the last time you used that first piece of technology developed by the metal worker in your garden? No. They were, they were the movers and shakers of their time. And they died. And they're forgotten. Very few people pay attention to the ancient kings of Edom. But you know, both those chapters, you've got these noisy, successful families, and then both the genealogies. That, that, I love these genealogies. They're so clever. They've little alternatives sprinkled in at the end. Look at Genesis 4. Why don't you see this little alternative sprinkled in at the end? Because there's one more first in the chapter. Oh, Cain's line's so successful. But there's, there's one more first. Now, let me read the last two verses. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed. In the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began. Oh, here's another verse. What did they do? Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, now think about it. We, we don't even have their names. These quiet nobodies. They didn't change their world at that time. 
But they called upon the name of Yahweh. And they gained something that outlasted everything that marked Cain's legacy. They gained something that would, would not pass and fade. Look at Genesis chapter 36 again. Actually, Genesis 37, verse 1. Immediately after the line, we have in chapter 37, verse 1, while all this is going on with Esau, we read, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. Oh, Esau, he's, he's doing everything. He's subjecting people. He's got land. He's got kings. He's got chiefs. He's, he's flourishing. Meanwhile, little Jacob, he's just twiddling his thumbs. Still a sojourner. Still a stranger. No land of his own. Still waiting. But where is he waiting? Oh, he's waiting in the land of promise. And he's trusting in what is yet to come. One commentator has said, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. That's the point in these two genealogies. These men, Jacob, those in Genesis 4, unnamed, they were waiting for a promise that would never rust nor fade. Esau, Cain, they got it. They got what they wanted and they've nothing today. But these others, ordinary, you'd walk right past them, not really making a dent in world history. Oh, they've got something that has lasted. You, you see all of that echoed in the rest of Scripture. Again, these genealogies help how we read. Mark chapter 6, you've a great story about Herod, Herod the Great, and it's contrasted in Mark 6 with Jesus himself. King Herod and King Jesus. Who is King Herod? A descendant of Esau. And you see the same pattern in Genesis 36 through 37.1 here in Mark chapter 6. In Genesis 36, Esau gets it all so successful while quiet Jacob is waiting for the promises to be satisfied. And in Mark chapter 6, you have King Herod, a man who has it all, fame, power, influence, everything. The only big problem is he has it all, but he's also apathy at his heart towards the Word of God given to him by John the Baptist. He's, he's just like Esau's forefather. He has a successful life, an impactful life for his time. But he rejects his birthright. He rejects the hope of the gospel. And in contrast, you have this King Jesus, who chapter 6, verse 32 says, remained in a secluded spot with his 12 disciples, just like forefather Jacob did in Genesis 37, verse 1, waiting on the promises and movement of God. What do we do with that? Well, don't be surprised when you look around you and sinners are doing really well. The Psalms do this a lot, don't they? Don't be jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. And, and be careful that we don't equate people who are successful in business, family, maybe even in church. Don't immediately equate that with morality or doing things right. 
Sometimes success on the surface is often a disguise or hides the, the coldness of a heart. And also, I think, value relationship with God beyond all pleasures of this world. Esau got it. Cain got it. They got all they wanted, and now they've nothing. We have something that will last, and that ultimately is what is important. The last point then I want to make, you've been so patient. I want us to see very quickly what life looks like serving God life looks like serving God. And and I want to think about you, if you're trusting in Christ, how do we serve Him moving forward? Well, the genealogies, yes, even the genealogies have something to teach us. And the first point is this, serve God within the boundaries of His prescriptions. Serve God within the boundaries of what He has told us to do in Scripture. There's a genealogy in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, a short one. But, but, but it's the genealogy of Ezra. And the point is that God had said what a priest was meant to be. A priest who led the people in their religious practice was to be a descendant of Aaron. And so in Ezra chapter 7, this great man who will lead really a reformation amongst that post-exilic people, his genealogy is recorded to show that he is called by God because he's qualified. Because he's qualified. This is no imposter. Part of knowing that Ezra was called by God is he met the qualifications of God's word. Those things are never sidestepped by God. When God says to do it this way, it's to be done that way. Now, very quickly, a practical application. I don't mean to be offensive, but I'm trying to think of things that are relevant in the evangelical church right now. Why is it a big deal that Saddleback, just down there in Orange County, why is it a big deal that they have appointed female pastors to lead the congregation? Well, because the Word says it's an office for qualified men. Why in a world where women are afforded so many rights that they were denied before, and we are thankful for that, and believe that that is right and appropriate and good. Yet, why would we at Grace Community Church dare to say that the office of elder is restricted to qualified men? Well, the Word says so. The Word says so. And that's the point of that genealogy there in Ezra chapter 7. Those seeking to serve God should serve Him according to how He has prescribed things, according to what He has said. Stay within the lane of Scripture. And yet, I'm not denying the point. That makes it sound like I'm going to be really controversial. I want you to see the last point. God delights to use the unlikely in His service to do amazing things. So, so, so we are to do what the Bible says, 
but also know God uses unlikely people. The last genealogy we haven't talked about this morning is the one there in Exodus chapter 6. It's a strange one because it comes right in the middle of the narrative. It's a really exciting story. You know, Moses gets called by God at the burning bush and he goes to Pharaoh and he says on behalf of God through Aaron, let my people go and we're ready for the fight to begin. And then there's a genealogy. And you're... Hollywood wouldn't touch it. Scripture's making a point. It stresses twice in the text, this Moses and this Aaron. That's who it's talking about. This Moses and this Aaron. And these are the guys that are going to be used by God to perform the signs and the wonders in Egypt, to to lead the people across the, the, the Red Sea, to take them to Mount Sinai, to deliver to them the law of God, to guide the establishment of the tabernacle, to look after them and lead them through the wilderness. This Moses and this Aaron, and we expect the genealogy to be kind of like a good resume, like all their qualifications, but it's not like that. It's not this Moses and this Aaron. It's this Moses, this Aaron. It stresses they're not from the first tribe. They're not from the second tribe. They're from the third tribe. And it literally does that. The genealogy of Reuben. Oh, no, the genealogy of Simeon. Oh, no, the genealogy of Levi. And in a world that cared about the oldest, note these guys aren't from that tribe. In fact, the tribe of Levi, we think of them in priestly terms as a noble tribe. But the last chapter of Scripture they're mentioned in, Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7, they're actually a tribe under curse. They're not the likely candidates. In fact, these are the guys who are going to give to the people the law of God. But the the text makes clear in that genealogy, Moses' mum and Moses' dad are siblings. It's weird. And it's really hard whenever you're the person that has to tell the people no more incest to be a product of that type of relationship. And in the future, the genealogy goes and it talks about others like Korah who would lead massive rebellions and lead people astray and cause the massacre of of thousands. This Moses and this Aaron. And it's a glorious reminder of this genealogy. Before the plague narrative kicks off, that Yahweh is a God who delights to use the weak things of this world to shame the wise. Just as he would use, Genesis eleven thirty 30, barren Sarai, or moon-worshipping Abraham, or Ruth the Moabite, or the favored teenage girl Mary, and her impoverished betrothed Joseph, God delights to use the unlikely to accomplish his extraordinary work in this world because 
I think it brings greater glory to Him. It's not about them. It's always about Him. He is the cause, and He is the effector. Now, now, this should be more obvious. What practical application can we take away from this begat? Well, I think we think about verse 7 as we seek to serve the Lord. Let's be careful to study His Word and do what He says. Let's make sure we, we stay in the lane of Scripture. Do it as He says it should be done. But let's also take great comfort in the fact that God delights to use the weak things of the world, even ones like Moses and this Aaron that come from messy backgrounds. God knows who you are. And you're a powerful instrument in the hands of an almighty God. No, it is God. It was never Moses. It was never Aaron. It was God who made those men effective. And it is God who always continues to make his instrument effective because it's all for his glory. And that should give us great comfort this morning. Let me pray and then you can come and harass me afterwards. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for all of your word. Lord, we, we, we acknowledge we, we don't study it as we should. We, we, we are so quick to skip past that which requires more time and more thought. And yet, Lord, you are glorious and your word is rich. And you have so much to teach us. We pray and ask that you would help us, Lord, not simply to know the word for the sake of knowing, but that we would study it carefully so that we would know you and love you more. And we pray that we would be effective in your hand. We thank you that in a world where we see so much turmoil and conflict, wars and aggression and hostility, even to the Christian message, both abroad and here nationally, we are so thankful that the that you so love the world and you sent your son and that, that, that he is the solution. He, he, he is uh, one who gives life eternal, not just momentary success, but life eternal. And we thank you, Lord, that as we seek to be faithful to the call of Scripture and to share this good news, we thank you, Lord, that the fields are white on the harvest. May we go out and labor, not in our own strength, but trusting that you are a good God who does use weak things in this world for your purpose and for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.